For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Modern Relevance of the Christian Passover. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be here. I was uh, almost not. I uh, had a, an accident yesterday and driving to work. Somebody decided they wanted to be where I was and weren't willing to wait until I was out of the way. So, um, but uh, I, I had to text Steve last night. I'm just, I don't know. I'm going to be sore tomorrow. So a heads up. Um, so you were almost blessed with, I'm sure, what would have been a better message from Steve. So unfortunately for you, I'm feeling well enough to come today. This is an interesting question. Maybe we don't uh, think about it very often because, well, for many of us, we're used to keeping the Passover. We've either grown up with it uh, from, from the time of our youth, or we've, we've kept it so for so many years now as adults that, that it, it has so much relevance and value to us that maybe this question doesn't even pop into our mind about what others might think of the Christian Passover and if it has value for them. We certainly have, um, I'm sure all of you have one time or another had interesting conversations with other Christians that do something a little different. They keep what we call Easter. And so maybe you've had conversations about the differences. And maybe you've had to explain why you do what you do. And, you know, one of the unique things about how we celebrate Christ our Passover is that, that, that we have that, that Eucharist, right? We have the, the bread and the wine one time a year. And I remember lots of conversations with Baptists and you know, all kinds of other denominations, and the interesting, really? We do it as often as we can. Different perspective. And for you and I, we, we see the incredible value and the richness of how we observe and remember and memorialize our Savior's sacrifice. So, how is that relevant? Because we certainly live in a world today where, well, <laughs> we're not all that ashamed of things that we do wrong, are we? And if we are, maybe we're just ashamed that we got caught, that we weren't smart enough to get away with it. So it might be a bit of a challenge to explain the value of the Christian Passover and what it can do for the life of an individual that lives in, certainly lives in this part of the world, in this country. What it could do to really help them. Why is the Christian Passover important? Why is it important for atheists? Whether they know it or not. Whether they think about it or not. Why is it important for atheists? Why is it important for for Buddhists and Muslims. Why is what we do important for the rest of the world? Is it important for the rest of the world? How does this Christianized version of what they would see as an ancient Jewish practice have any value in our modern era, in our modern scientific technologically advanced, secularized, pluralistic, relativistic world that we live in. Why does this practice matter? Why does it matter for our young people? Why does it matter for our teenagers, for our children? Why does it matter to them that they understand this, learn this, live? That's a much harder question to ask, to answer, isn't it? We can debate with other Christians, Passover versus Easter, and we can pull out our proof texts, 
but trying to prove to a world that does not think there's any value in Christ Jesus our Passover. Trying to explain to that world why it really matters to them is a much harder ask. And the reason we need to know how to explain that is because we are supposed to be explaining that, aren't we? Why do we do this? Just for us? Or to be an example, a light, a symbol for others to see and ask questions? for us to have an opportunity to give answers. Well, so maybe one of the easiest points to jump onto about Passover, and Mark touched on this very well earlier, is forgiveness. Yeah, Passover is about forgiveness. And that's, that's a true statement. Passover is about forgiveness. That's one of the central elements to the Christian Passover and to the Hebrew Passover. We have the, the historical Passover. Yes, we have elements of escape and we have elements of, of liberation. But then, as it matures, it's more about forgiveness, isn't it? Bringing that, that lamb as an offering, as a sacrifice, which, of course, could be done throughout the year, any time. Sin. But bringing that lamb, shedding that innocent blood, and through that blood and through that lamb, dying in our place, we receive forgiveness from all the sins, from all the wrongs that we've committed. This, you could argue, perhaps, is the first or one of the first principles of Passover. And it's probably the easiest for people to understand. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Pretty straightforward. It's basic. So we could explain Passover to a world that desperately needs forgiveness. Ever-growing need for forgiveness. Just look at the last few weeks and months, this last year. Wrong after wrong after wrong. And, and, and you know, you see that in the media. It happens all the time. But it seems like there's, a, there's an increased level of people being wrong abused, violated, murdered, more war, more destruction, more death and suffering upon another, building up. And our response is what? The natural human response, I'm going to get them back. I am going to make them pay. Right? the natural human response. Not forgiveness. Long-term bitter conflicts between people. Look at the Middle East. Does it matter why it all started? Does it really matter? Does it really matter who has the score against the other? Does it really matter? Or could the Palestinian and Israeli conflict be solved with a perfect, absolute forgiveness on both sides. Seems a little naive, isn't it? A little simple. We don't live in that kind of world. But Passover is that simple. Passover is that simple. Maybe part of the problem is that our definition of what forgiveness is a little skewed. If you look on Wikipedia, it says that uh, forgiveness is the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding an offense. Let's go of negative emotions such as vengefulness with increased ability to wish the offender well. 
You know, that's not wrong. Those things are in forgiveness. They are part of what we should do. And perhaps it does take us some time to, to wish that offender well instead of to wish them falling down and hitting their head. Maybe it, maybe it is part of that forgiveness process. But is, is that it? Or is there more? We should forgive others for the things that they have done to us. We should forgive others for the terrible things that they have done to our loved ones. Even for heinous crimes like murder. I have never, well, obviously I've never been murdered, but I have never been in a position where somebody that, well, I take that back. I actually have. Not a family member, but a friend. A friend of mine in England, longtime member of the church. Some young people just decided that they were going to break into his house as he opened his door. And he was an elderly man. And they kicked him to death, basically. He survived long enough to go to the hospital, never awoke from consciousness. Murder. They have to forgive. Even a murderer. And we might be thinking, why would we have to do that? Because of what it will do to us if we don't. Forgiveness is vital for us. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are the these are the things of not forgiveness. These are the, the opposite of forgiveness. Let all of this bitterness and this wrath and this anger and clamor and evil speaking, condemning, bringing down with all malice and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Why? even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about justice, because God commands justice. He commands a society that is organized with government <clears throat> and with a legal system, and he expects us to have justice. And he has given us laws by which to govern ourselves. So he does want us to meet out appropriate justice. But what we're talking about here is individual forgiveness. Something that is very hard to do. Forgiving, not taking revenge, not getting even, not continuing to feud, not continuing to have a war. And the greatest benefit, really, in that is for us. The wronged party not having that bitterness just ruin our life. And I'm sure we've all experienced that. Experienced that enemy maybe in the workplace or that relative that treats us so badly, wherever it may be. Not allowing that bitterness or forgiveness. It's interesting, uh, before services, Laura mentioned that she was thinking about my dad. And I was thinking about my dad today um, in this topic because I, I may have shared this story before, but finally when the inquest was, you know, finally getting completed and they were having the final uh, public uh, event for that, you know, my mother went, my aunt went with her, her sister, and my mother observed the other families uh, of the three young men that were in the other car that... Uh, that my dad, you know, died in, in that accident. And she observed absolute bitterness and anger and grief and, and all the emotions from the families of the, the other two young men towards the family of the driver. They had become kind of the proxy for their son and their brother because there was a sister and a mother. 
And they were the proxy for all of that rage and bitterness. And, and by all accounts, from what my mom could make out, they were actually family friends. They were, all their kids grew up together. And this just broke, of course, all of that apart. These were young men, 20, 21, 22 years old. Three young men. And you know what? You came out in the inquest. They weren't drunk. They weren't uh, speeding. They weren't being reckless. It was an accident. By all accounts, they were just the wrong place at the wrong time. Everybody was. It happened. So they had the inquest. My mother left. It was getting uh, toward evening time, I think. And so my mother and my aunt went for a meal at the local cafe. And a little while later, who would walk in but the mother of the driver and her daughter, the, the sister of the driver, that was on the other car. And they recognized one another. And the daughter came up to my mother and just had to talk to her. They had not talked before. And not like they had anything to apologize for. <laughs> they weren't driving the car. But she just expressed her sorrow to my mother, the loss of my dad. And, and in some ways, maybe asking for some kind of forgiveness, maybe not just for them, but, but for her brother. She said he would have, it would just mortify him <laughs> for him to know that this happened and that he was involved, even though he didn't cause it. And what happened was a conversation where my mother was able to show grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. And the, the mother of the driver came over, and they all just hugged and had that moment of a forgiveness of, kind, of, of, of a kind, certainly a, a reconciliation and being at peace. And I'm sure it had tremendous value to, to those two women to know that not everybody was bitter and angry towards them about what happened. That there is a way of getting grace and forgiveness. An example. Many of us have examples like that of being given an opportunity to forgive with the grace of Jesus Christ helping us do it. But sometimes it's not easy. Forgiveness is so critical in human life. So critical. But it's not natural. You know, we forgive each other easily for maybe harsh words said in anger. Maybe, you know, we feel slighted or left out or something like that. And we forgive pretty readily for those things. But the deep trespasses, when we're truly wrong, that's when forgiveness is really a difficult thing to do. You know, you think about history. Think about the pages of history. I wonder how many conflicts could have been solved by people just forgiving one another. Not every conflict. There are evil people in the world, and we see that through history. And there are times when you stand up and you fight and you take that evil out for everyone's benefit. But then there is forgiveness, even after war, even after the conflict. But how many of those conflicts could have been avoided with forgiveness on both sides? So it's really not hard, is it, when we look at this world to see just that one facet of Passover and forgiveness that's available to each and every person on this entire world. Every single person is available to them to come to the knowledge and the understanding Christ Jesus, our pastor. It's just one facet of 
Passover. It's not hard to see how this world desperately needs it. Christian Passover teaches us to show that example and how critical it is for us to forgive one another. But is that it? Is that the only way, is that the only value that the Christian Passover has for the world? It would be a phenomenal thing if that's all the world adopted from Passover. But they'd be missing the point, a greater point. At the core of Passover, specifically the Christian Passover, there is a fundamental principle of work and something that every person, every thinking person knows to be intrinsically true. And it is that this world is not the way it was supposed to be. And that we are not the way we're supposed to be. We know that. It, it doesn't matter what faith you have, no faith at all. Every single person, if you're thinking about the state of affairs and about your own life on this earth, will and should recognize that it is not supposed to be like this. Something has gone terribly wrong with the world and with us. We as a race, as a family of mankind, are not what we're supposed to be. You think about all the different religions in the world. Every single religion in the world tries to tackle this that they have some kind of tenant, some kind of practice that tries to resolve this underlying understanding that things are not the way they should be. All religions provide for their followers a way to become better, right? Have you ever heard of a religion that says, this is how you get to be worse? And that of itself is evident for this underlying feeling and knowledge that things are supposed to be better. We are supposed to be better than we are. Holier, more righteous, more perfect to develop and grow into the type of being that we should have been all along. Even humanists, evolutionists, and secularists are governed by this principle. And they too have tenets of faith. That by taking action, by following a set of creeds, adopting principles of human, humanism and humanity, that the failures of mankind can be removed and we will evolve towards a better version of ourselves, becoming again what we should have been all along. Muslims, their response to this principle is to do more good than bad. Apparently by doing more good than bad, that's how they will get to heaven, to paradise, and get their reward. Doing more good than bad. If you think about it, the Jewish religion is not all that different. I'm not talking about the faith of the Old Testament. I'm talking about the practice of Judaism. It's about being righteous and doing things to make yourself righteous. Buddhists, Hindus, all have similar practices in the end. Do good, embrace good, forgive, relieve yourself of that bitterness. Even evolutionary atheists follow this principle, right? Because they don't believe in devolution. They believe in evolution. We're getting better. Our genome is getting better. We're progressing forward towards a better version of ourselves. That we as a species are physically evolving toward a better version and a better world. And of course, they'll tie some humanistic morality to that to try and govern the behavior while we're physically evolving. Christianity is different. 
Christianity and the Christian Passover shows us something completely different from any other faith on the earth. It's really important for us to know this and understand this, of how unique and special Christianity really is. And the, the Christian Passover is central to that. Christianity, while teaching us that we should forgive, that we should be merciful, we should be kind and good, also teaches something that no other faith does. It teaches us that without Christ Jesus, without Jesus, we cannot become better than we are. We cannot become better than we are. In Romans chapter 5 and verse, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, whom also we have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is part of that incredible uniqueness of the faith that we have, of the Christian Passover at work in our lives. And this is another vital difference, another vital difference between Christianity and the rest of the world, between Christianity and every other faith, that the mechanism of our salvation, of our redemption, was put in place. When? When was it put in place? Before we even knew we needed it. It was already prepared for us. In fact, the scripture tells us, doesn't it, that Christ was slain from the foundations of the earth. This was always the plan. That can blow your mind. But this was always the plan. While we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're hurting ourselves and others, while our anger and our bitterness dictated our actions, while lust and desire ruled our passions, we just did whatever we want. We lied and stole and cheated to get ahead or to cover our shame. While we did all those things to one another and ourselves, God, Jesus, died for us. This principle is not found in any other faith. It is not there. No other religion has this. Only, it is only manifest in the Christian Passover. At the time of Jesus' public trial and crucifixion, you could, that could not have been any more evident, right? That this, this process where Jesus is dying, is about to die for the people who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. While they were in their sins, he was dying for them, for us. We were in the crowd. Yelling, crucified. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Justified by his blood? You mean all those other religions are wrong? We're not justified by works? It says we're justified by his blood. There's no steps that we can take. There's no 
exercises we can do. We cannot undo and erase the wrongs that we have done. We are justified by his blood. There's no physical evolution going on here, improving the species. In fact, if the history of the world is any example, it really is devolution. We are justified. We are made more perfect. We are improved by his blood. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, as Reg excellently pointed out earlier, we shall be saved by life. It's his life that saves us. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We've received it. That's another difference between Christianity and the religions of the world. We have received it now. We have received that reconciliation now. We can live in communion with God now, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't need steps to take us to paradise. One act takes us to paradise, and that's Christ Jesus, him reconciling us with the Father. We were enemies of God, but he took steps to end the war. He forgave us first. He forgave us first. He put in place the method for our forgiveness and our salvation first. Not just through his death. Because, you know, if you think about it, if he had died only, how different was that from a lamb that just died? Dead is dead. And he can't keep dying. Something else had to happen. He had to be raised from the dead. He had to be that Passover lamb of old and also a new Christian Passover. New Christian Passover lamb that was raised from the dead. It's critical for us to understand that. He rose from the dead after three days and three nights. He did rise from the dead. Another powerful and unique element of Christianity that is buried, no pun intended, deep within the Christian Passover. And as Mark said earlier, he sat down. He was resurrected and sat down on high. It is finished. It is. It was done. How sweet it must have felt to him to know that he had done it. That he had liberated all of mankind. And a little twinkle in his eye because we didn't know it yet. Why we were still in our sin. Christ died for us. And why is this important? Why is it important that he is resurrected from the dead, that he saves us by his life rather than just by his death? And it goes back to the principle I mentioned earlier, that inside each and every one of us is a yearning, is an understanding that we're not the way we are supposed to be. And just being forgiven isn't enough. Something else has to happen. Every other religion of the world is trying to tell people to be better versions of themselves. God is about doing something completely different. and shows us through the Christian Passover. Paul continues, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men like this, like this virus programmed to infect the hearts and the minds, of every single human being. 
For until the, until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one's, one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of, grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came from the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the, the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Right here is why the Christian Passover is relevant, exceptionally relevant to the world today. And it continues to grow even more relevant as more offenses are built up and more sin is built up. With each passing year that man tries in vain to better his own nature. It's futile for us to think that we can improve our own nature. Religion, often cited as the cause of so many wars, was rejected from the 20th century. Caused so many wars so we come up with our own philosophy and our own humanistic enlightenment. And that turned around and produced more destruction than any religion ever had. More death than any single religious conflict ever had. But what Paul tells us is this. That in the same way that sin entered into the world, entered into our genome, our species. So life has entered. Sin, which is just an old word for what? Corrupt, deceptive, destructive practices, lying and stealing and cheating, betraying, using every means, as I said before, to get ahead, to just take what we want. Sin and death entered into the world by one man, Adam, and so also by one man, Jesus Christ, life and grace. But even though these two different outcomes have a similar path, Paul keeps stressing. He stresses twice an interesting thing. He repeats himself saying, the free gift is not like the offense. And he says this twice. It's not like the condemnation. Well, that should be obvious. One is to death, and one is to life. But was he stating the obvious? Or was he trying to get us to look a little deeper? He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And then he says it again. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. I think there's a lot going on here. One of the first things that comes to mind is what is supposed to happen when someone kills another man unlawfully, what is supposed to happen? Well, under the law, if you kill someone else, you murder them, it's an unlawful killing, your life is forfeit, and you would be killed. And yet, we killed the Son of God. We kind of got away with it didn't really get away with it. But that offense was not held to our charge. 
We were not charged with that offense. We don't have to pay the price for that offense. How could we pay the price for that offense? He did not, God did not lay it to our charge, but he did lay it on us. He laid the death of Jesus Christ on us as a covering, as a protection, as a washing away of all the sin, all the killing, all the wickedness that our race has done. It was not like that which caused us to fall into sin and death. It was simply amazing grace. God's amazing grace towards us. That while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. That his death at our hands was not to our charge. He covered us with his own precious blood. And in spite of all of our countless sins, all the offenses that we have committed, he brought about our justification. And Paul says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, Many will be made righteous. This is not in the Quran. This is not in the teachings of Buddha. This is not in any other faith. It is only through Christ Jesus, creating that new creature in him, that we can become what God wanted us to be. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Much more. How much grace is that? You think about all the sin in your own life, multiplied by everyone that has ever lived. And Paul is saying, the grace of God abounded more than that. In every turn, he has provided and tried to give us a way to pour out his grace upon us. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is to reign, to rule in righteousness. We have very stark evidence indeed. The whole history of the world is a record of mankind's inability to restore himself to the condition that he was, that he knows intrinsically that we are supposed to be better. We have failed at every turn. Our progressive march toward a greater civilization, peace, <laughs> how well are we doing on that? And the glorious future that we've envisioned for ourselves, how are we going to reach that? only ever resulting in war, destruction, and death. Which is why Christian Passover is more relevant today than it ever has been. And we should talk about it. We should share this with our friends, with our neighbors. This should encourage us, give us strength to continue in this faith. It is only through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we can be made into the kind of people that we know we are not. Paul continues in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us have, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And you notice how he t ties those two pieces together. 
He ties the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our walking in newness of life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is resurrected? About five of you do. We've got a lot of work to do here. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected? Then that is the impetus for us to walk in newness of life. Every day. Doesn't mean perfect. Doesn't mean flawless. Because we're all in trouble. That's what it means. But he, he ties that. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then we have to make ourselves walk in newness of life. But it's not the make ourselves like in the Quran or, or in any other religious teaching. It's not we do this ourselves. He is right here with us, walking with us. Paul says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Dead, gone, done away with. Because if we believe that he was resurrected, we also believe that he was crucified and was put in the grave, and the old man was in that tomb with him. That the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We wrestle with that. I, I do sin. I probably said some bad words yesterday when this guy ran into me. And I had anger. I really did. But by the time I got out of the truck, walked the length of the truck, the grace of Jesus Christ, didn't hit him in the face. I didn't yell and scream. I gave grace. But you know what? I'm not perfect either. He made a mistake. He didn't want to wreck his nice new truck. I can guarantee you that. We all still sin. We all still make mistakes. And we beat ourselves up about it. And we undermine though, the beauty and the truth and the knowledge and the real, real actuality that we are walking in newness of life. We undermine that when we focus on the sin that we will still commit. Should we sin more that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Paul wants to see a downward trend, right? But we are walking in newness of life, and we are made perfect through Christ Jesus. We don't have a list of do's and don'ts that can lead us to salvation. We've already been brought to a place of salvation. Christ Jesus has brought us there already. For he who has died has been freed from sin, he says. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Done. And to me, that's why, for personally, that's why I celebrate Passover once a year, because it is a symbol of the fact that Jesus Christ did it once for all. Done. We don't have to go up to the temple. Have you thought about how many lambs you would have had to slain in your lifetime if you lived in Israel? Maybe you save them up and use a lamb once a week. I don't know. You don't have to go up every day for every sin. Christ died once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. 
Likewise, you also, this is really important. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Count yourself as being dead to sin. Don't live in sin. Don't dwell in sin. Don't dwell on your mistakes and, your, in, and the sins that you make. Count yourself as dead to it. You are dead to it, but alive to God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can we do that? Can we focus our life and do that? Reckon that we are dead to sin. Calculate that we are dead to sin. Verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Remember that grace that abounded more than all of our sin. We are under grace. And I know this is one of the scriptures that maybe we sometimes argue with other folks about. Of course, there's still law. It still shows us what is sin. How do we know what not to sin, what not to do? We have the law. We are under grace. We are not under the judgment of the law. You're dead to sin. This is the message of the Christian Passover. And this is the transformative power that only Jesus Christ has in this only faith that can bring us to Jesus Christ. Living in each one of us as new creatures. The old man dead. He's gone. The old woman is dead and gone. We should have joy and, and just celebrate that grace. There is something wrong in the world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. We were not the way we were supposed to be. Mankind should be better. Only the Christian Passover, only Christ Jesus, him crucified, buried and resurrected. Only that can bring us and restore us to where we should have been all along.